From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here again at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, sustainable finance and the circular economy, the business case for living buildings, changing the conversation with institutional investors, and what does an airline sustainability executive actually do? It's Project Runway, this week on 350. It's February 15th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me across these United States is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Very good pun this week. Bravo. Uh, well, you know, uh, give me a little runway and I'm, I'm, I'm up, I'm, I'll take off. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, boy, uh, we are experiencing extreme weather here in California. I'm sure you've had your share in the East Coast. I know you have, but we are raining, 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 raining. And it's, you know, both a beautiful thing because some years we just don't get that stuff and uh, wildfire season and everything else results. And at some point it falls in the category of carrying a good joke too far. <laughs> so I'll be ready for whatever the rain decides to stop. And it's not going to be anytime soon. Yeah, we had a little turbulence here this week. We had some snow, but uh, that's good. It's all a good thing and we need the water as well. So it's a happy week Pre preparing for our wonderful Green Biz 19 conference. I am so excited. What about you, Joel? I bet you're like on a million calls as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's always this time of year uh, uh, just prepping and talking to everybody we need to talk to and buttoning down every little detail that that we can um but um a couple other things this week that i'm i'm excited about i mean that the conference is so you know 10 days from now so we'll get to that <laughs> but you know this is in this in this world where things are are changing faster than any of us can pay attention uh, i mean and not even we haven't even gotten to the Green New Deal stuff and, and just the ruckus that's causing, which is pretty interesting. But we have uh, two things I want to talk about. One is um, a new member of the Green Biz team started this week, Sarah Golden, a communications and energy specialist who I think is going to just so excited to have, have her on the team. I've known her for a few years, and we've been uh, working with her to get her on the team, joining the uh, with Shauna on the Verge team and working on on, on energy. So, uh, welcome Sarah. It's great to have you. And uh, bonjour, Sarah. <laughs> bonjour. What's the what's with the French? It's just me being French. Oh, okay, cool. Well, um, speaking of of global stuff, we launched this week our international search for our th uh, 2019 class of. 30 under 30s in partnership with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and BSR. Um, this, yes. yeah. Uh, yep, yep. I, know this I don't is... know if you noticed, we already have six nominations. That's good. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll get uh, several hundred uh, mm -hmm. by the time uh, the deadline rolls around in early April, and we can only pick what? 30 under 30. 30. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So if you haven't checked that out yet, please do. Uh, we'll be, uh, this is always a great feature of uh, the, the calendar, the editorial calendar. And um, this year, uh, just again, it's so fun to find these individuals, a few of whom we may know and most of whom we don't from 
three or four continents, people who are just rising stars, or in some cases already stars, in the world of sustainable business, and, and not just business, sometimes in city government and public, public sector in general. So um, we're excited to begin that search, uh, and we'd love, love, love to hear from you, dear listener, and anyone you know who you think is, uh, is a rising star who will not be 30 years old before the first week in June. So check that out on, just go to greenbiz.com. Hey. Joel, you know what else we're searching for? Speakers. Speakers for Verge 19. We're already working on that program. We haven't even gotten done with our first event of the year, and we're planning our last event of the year. And uh, so this call for speakers is up on the site. I encourage people to look for that as well. Um, if, you, if you know someone who's got a great story to tell on how that person or that person's company is accelerating the just transition to a clean economy, get in there, propose that person as a speaker. Um, we have tons and tons of, uh, of great conference uh, tracks that are already developing, um, including some new ones. Okay, well, um, that's enough with forward-looking statements. Let's take a look back. <laughs> yeah, the auditors the would review. be mad at us, right? <laughs> exactly. All right, we can review. So finance is showing up this week. We have a couple of great stories uh, on that. Uh, let's, uh, let's take the first one first, of course. Um, uh, this is about uh, Martian McLennan and Allianz and how other insurers like them are responding to climate change risks, written by our contributor, Jen Boynton. Uh, this is just a really interesting area. I mean, we started writing about climate risk and the insurance industry. Oh, I don't know. I'm saying I want to say ten years ago, uh, and you know, a lot of it was not. It was just beginning as the insurance industry was um, starting to look at climate change and understand the potential there to to uh, result in much bigger payouts than in the past. But actually, the reality is that over the years, uh, despite the severe weather and the, the hurricanes and the droughts and everything else. Climate change actually hasn't been much more than a blip for most insurers. They've baked that into their projections that there will be more of this. So it really hasn't been catastrophic for them yet. And in fact, what Jen's piece is about is about uh, how insurance companies are taking advantage of climate change with some new and innovative products. Yeah, in particular, there's something that, that we're studying and I'm still trying to get my arms around. I'm not an insurance expert by any stretch of the imagination, but so-called parametric insurance. So you mentioned before that insurance companies have been uh, sort of accounting for, if you will, uh, the possibility of events. But now they're, they're looking more at the likelihood, right? So the likelihood with climate change that the wind speeds will hit certain levels or that higher low temperature thresholds will be met or even a rainfall level. So they're getting much more specific with what kinds of events could trigger a payout. And so that's this area called parametric insurance. Marsha McLennan, Alliance, Swiss Re are all actively developing this business. And I was reading about, um, you know, Jen's piece talks a little bit about a product in Europe called Flow. And that's specifically for companies that do um, commerce on the Rhine 
river. Um, it's just interesting looking at how the waterways could be affected by, you know, in terms of water levels and how that might affect commerce. And so if you're an insurance company, you could be clobbered by climate change or you could really get ahead of the curve and I hate to say it, but profit from understanding what might happen and, and getting in place to, to help companies prepare ahead of time. Um, yeah, I don't think you need to be tiptoe around the fact that insurance companies profit from from loss. Yeah, <laughs> that's right? what they do. That's right. what they do. And um, and I think what's also interesting about this are some of the other kinds of things that insurers are insuring against. It's not just catastrophes, uh, you know, the typical fire, flood, wind, and all that. There's also things like uh, like renewables, um, mm-hmm. where renewable energy you sign a 20 year contract based on some assumption that prices will go in a certain direction and make your investment worthwhile. It could be a purchasing a system. It could be a, a power purchase agreement over 20 years or, or whatever. And, and, and sometimes the markets don't, don't behave the way you want. Shocking. And so uh, there's insurance for that, uh, renewables risk. And another one is around stranded assets, uh, thing, in, investments that a company makes that... Um, don't work out so well because of things like uh, uh, power plants that have to be decommissioned or can no longer be run or perhaps laws against fracking that are enacted that that result in the loss of business. And so there's those kinds of of risks too. So it's a pretty interesting area. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're certainly going to keep tracking that because this, this relates not just to the insurance industry, but everybody else who gets insured on the, on, the, on the business sector. But the other area that's so interesting, um, and this has become my pet area of interest, even though I am still so not knowledgeable about this, it's such a big topic, is this world we've been talking about for, for weeks and months and years around ESG, mm-hmm. environmental, social, and governance issues. And you had a piece, Heather, about how uh, ESG issues are not yet getting the attention they deserve in corporate boardrooms. Yeah, it, this is a, a piece that I wrote based on some research from PwC, um, which annually conducts a survey of boards of directors. So they go out to U.S. companies and and ask them about certain things, such as, you know, do you, do you think this issue is important? Um, what are you hoping to hear from your executives in, in management, you know, how do you interact? Also things like, you know, do you think the shareholder issue is too prevalent or not prevalent enough? And believe it or not, up until this past year, they haven't really focused on this. The survey hasn't really focused on ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. So this past cycle, PwC added some questions in related to trying to really tap the psyche, if you will, of the boardroom, you know, how, how directors are thinking about climate change, what they think about ESG, is ESG too, you know, too prevalent or not prevalent enough. And scarily enough, because I kind of live this and I, and I was surprised by this a little bit, but a significant number of directors think that too much time is being spent on ESG. Uh, in particular, you know, there were certain things in, that were covered in this, such as diversity and inclusion, but also specifically climate change. Um, one of the, the, the stats that popped out at me was that almost 40% of those surveyed did not think that climate change should be considered as, as, a, as part of a strategic discussion. Yeah, 
I know. 39% think climate change should not impact corporate strategy at all. It's like, really? How? What, where are you living? I mean, maybe you're, you know, have a business that's in a concrete bunker and... and I don't know how you get to that. Um, and over half, 53%, say environmental sustainability expertise is not very or not at all important to have on their board. This is, this is just, it's, it's mildly shocking. If they're maybe oxymoronic to say mildly shocking, but it is surprising. And, and there's another study that came out in the last uh, week or so that might explain some of this. This one's from Europe. It's something from an organization called the Alliance for Corporate Transparency. And they analyzed reporting uh, in 105 European companies. And although a vast majority of the companies acknowledge the importance of environmental and social issues in their reports, more often than not, the survey found, the information was not clear in terms of concrete issues, targets, and principal risks, the Alliance said. So to me, these things are connected. The boards aren't thinking it's important, and it may be because companies aren't yet providing the kind of information that needs to be out there to be understood. So here's this thing that, that it's one of these big ironic things, right? I mean, I kind of think this is a little bit of a question of semantics. If you look into the survey a little bit more deeply, there was an interesting stat on whether or not boards should be paying attention to, quote, resource scarcity. And so this is, a, you know, I mentioned before that this is the first year they, they asked the ESG question, so there's really no comparative data. But there is comparative data on this data point, and about 31% um, of, the, of the respondents from this current survey said it was important that resource scarcity be considered. And that compares with 21% in the prior year's survey. So all of a sudden, they're a lot more interested in resource, resource scarcity, but not you know, climate change or, or so forth. So I think, I feel like a little bit of semantics could be, could be here, um, communications. It kind of speaks to the need for the, the corporate sustainability folks to get themselves embedded more deeply into the investor relations department, um, the operations teams, and so forth, and maybe thinking about the way that they talk about some of these issues. Yeah, and we're going to hear a little bit more about this later on in this show uh, from Kristen Lang at Series. Uh, they have a new report out about changing the conversation between companies and the big institutional investors on ESG. Um, and, of course, we're going to be talking about this more at GreenBiz19 in just 10 days or so in Phoenix, uh, including the half-day Greenfin Summit that I'm really excited about bringing together a group of big investors and companies to sort of look at, at this, this communications gap, as you aptly described it, Heather, and, and some of the other gaps in, of understanding um, and, and the kinds of information that companies are putting out there that may not be that meaningful to investors yet. So lots more to come on this topic. But let's move over to our, the other story we want to talk about, living buildings. <laughs> living buildings. I love this topic. Um, I, I've written a little bit about uh, the living building challenge, which uh, was introduced, actually didn't realize this, uh, 13 years ago by the International Living Future Institute. And for those of you who don't know what this is, it's a, a, a basically a system of, of design 
that basically in, uh, encourages designers and architects to think about buildings as living things, right? So if you want to power a building, you should completely power it by the sun. The building should use basically harvest all the rainwater it needs. It's supposed to think it, it actually is a little biomimetic, if you will. It, it, it looks to nature and, and, and challenges building and construction professionals to think about a, about a structure as a, as a, as a living, breathing thing. And uh, we've talked a lot about the bullet center. It's like one of the sort of quintessential examples of, of what a living building could be in Seattle. Yeah. In Seattle. Um, and anyway, this is a great update. I, I was uh, happy to see that there's more than 100 buildings that have met some aspect of the challenge, right? So there's lots of um, different ways you can get some recognition for this. There's, you can pick materials um, and use materials in a certain way. You can use water in a certain way or energy. Um, there's also health metrics, right? So how the, the building um, and how humans feel literally and, and psychically and psychologically about the building um, and whether it's, it's a good place to work. So uh, it's a nice update on sort of the, the program and where, where things stand. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And I love that the Living Building Standard has a series of petals, different topics. And, and two of those petals are on health and happiness mm -hmm. and beauty. Like, all right, that's great. Because I think this is where this standard picks up where the lead, U.S. Green Building Council, the lead standard uh, maybe stops short uh, of taking in the, the human dynamic here. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, Heather, uh, but I, you know, brag a little bit here. My first book in 1981, you weren't born yet, was about the health effects of office environments. So this is, uh, I mean, it was kind of early on. They were just sealing up buildings to save energy and bringing in all these synthetic materials and carpeting and particle board for furniture and tearing out all the interior walls and creating this big open space, sealing the windows shut and increasing the indoor air quality and the problems in indoor air quality. Uh, this is a topic that's been around for a long time, and I've been tracking this for a long time. And, and I think that ILFI, the Inter International Living Future Institute, is, is the first organization to take this on head on. Again, 13 years ago, uh, getting some great traction, and uh, it's, it's, it's so good to see. And I, I only hoped the best in terms of uh, more buildings, more building owners, more company that own their own building, uh, seeing the benefits in health, productivity, and the environment in living buildings. So I'm really excited this week to debut what I fully expect will be a recurring feature called What I Do. Each episode, we're going to feature a uh, sustainability professional in a company, or might be a city, uh, might be an NGO even, uh, talking about their job, just to hear what sustainability people do. And first up, uh, he was kind enough to be my guinea pig for this uh, feature, is Aaron Robinson, the Senior Manager of Environmental Strategy and Sustainability at United Airlines. Here he is. I'm Aaron Robinson. I'm the Senior Manager of Environmental Strategy and Sustainability at United Airlines. I manage our EcoSkies program, where our goal is to be the world's most environmentally conscious airline. 
I've been at United Airlines for the last five years, the last three of which have been in this role of environmental sustainability. This is actually my second time doing this role. I previously worked in this same position for another airline in previous years. Before both of those, I was actually working on fuel efficiency, which is really the core of an airline sustainability work. We as airlines are some of the largest users of fuel in the world, and so anything we can do to reduce that fuel use is a huge direct impact on the business and our environmental footprint. And the environmental footprint we, we have, the greenhouse gas emissions, it's really much larger than, than all of our other impacts. We use much more fuel than uh, other companies do and generate much more emissions than other companies do. We never really have the same day twice. Often we're exploring new opportunities uh, to expand our use of sustainable fuel, low carbon fuel that's going to power our aircraft in the future, typically using a waste feedstock to, to power them. So instead of oil powering the aircraft, we're looking to things like landfill waste to power the aircraft going forward. We're also reviewing new technologies to reduce our fuel use in the aircraft we have today. Uh, so an example of that is figuring out how we can power the aircraft on the ground and move the aircraft to and from the runway using motors on the aircraft instead of the, the jet engines, which just really aren't optimized for that. And then a big part is, of course, is, is just sharing our future vision with our big customers, whether it's our corporate customer or individual travelers as well, to really try and drive a brand choice and make people excited about flying on United. Often I get asked by people if aviation really can be sustainable, and I think absolutely. As an industry, we want to be able to move to electric aircraft and eventually to a solar aircraft as well. And we've seen evidence of this. Solar Impulse 2 flew around the world a couple of years ago. The downside was it had two people on board. They flew at 45 miles an hour, and the wingspan was a 747. But, you know, it proved that it can be done, and so we have this great opportunity going forward to really focus on that and uh, make the same thing happen for airline travel as well. A lot of people will ask, how can you reduce fuel use in your operations today? And what I liken it to a lot of the time is it's like how you drive your car. You can go out and you can buy a new Prius or an electric vehicle, and that's fantastic, but it also matters how you drive that vehicle. You can do things like remove the excess weight in your trunk. Maybe it's uh, some packages or extra equipment you don't need, or it might be uh, the map from that road trip that you took two months ago. You can remove weight. You can do things like change how you drive your vehicle. Uh, are you an aggressive driver that starts and stops frequently? But you can do things like maintain your vehicle better, whether it's putting coatings on to reduce the drag, or you can just even change your entire driving patterns. Are you carpooling? Are you combining trips? And we can do all these same things with airplanes today with what we have available to us. It's things like optimizing the flight path that the aircraft takes, reducing delay time in the air, maintaining the aircraft better so that way it, it has less drag or it has more fuel efficiency saving devices on board. All of these same techniques that we use for everyday driving, we can absolutely use on airplanes today. Most young boys have a, have a dream of being one of, the, one of a few different things when they grow up. It might be a pilot, an astronaut, a paleontologist, a firefighter. I had most of these dreams when I was a kid, but the one that really stuck with me was, was being a pilot. And the big reason for that was my older brother, who is an airline pilot today. And so I actually started down the path of doing the same thing. 
I did get my pilot's license during college. But we also had a father who's a professor and uh, was someone who really strongly believed in the value of doing what's best for society. I got into sustainability by accident through the fuel efficiency work I was doing uh, years ago, and I found it incredibly rewarding. It was meaningful to the company, to society, and you know, in addition, you have a great network of people you, you meet and, and work with towards this long-term goal. I'm a huge traveler, not just for work, but uh, certainly on a personal level as well. I, I love going out and exploring new places, connecting with people and friends in other cities and, and countries. And I think it's especially amazing to be able to have that opportunity and to go and see and understand other cultures, other peoples. It's a, it's a real blessing and, and one I've been fortunate to live with. Looking ahead in my career, it's hard to find anywhere else I'd rather be. This is my second time doing this job and it's even more rewarding this time because I'm in a great position where I get to be working with the industry leader in this space. It's hard to find something else I'd rather be doing because this, re this current job really combines a lot of the things I love. It's working with airplanes, working with people, and getting to explore and experience and, and help protect the, uh, the planet we live on. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the growing and changing role of investors when it comes to engaging large companies on environmental and social issues. Today, nearly half of the 600 largest publicly traded companies are formally communicating with investors in some way on sustainability, either through annual meetings, quarterly earnings calls, investor days, and the like. Last week, the nonprofit group Series released a report on redefining how companies engage investors on sustainability. Kristen Lang, the director of the Company Network at Series, is the report's author, and she joins me now. Hello, Kristen. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. So for years, companies have complained that investors didn't really care about their social or environmental performance, but that seems to be changing, and I'm wondering what happened. So what we know is that ESG investment is on the rise. Just here within the U.S. alone, it's doubled in the last three years, and it now represents one of every $4 that are invested in this country. And there are a few things that are influencing that. The first is that investors increasingly see sustainable businesses as a lower investment risk. The research continues to affirm that companies that have a focus on sustainable business strategies actually can get a competitive advantage as it relates to stock price, cost of capital, operational performance. The second is that we're witnessing this transition of wealth to a younger genera generation of investors whose values are aligned with sustainable business priorities. And investors are responding to that demand by um, offering a variety of different new products and services and just generally increasing their focus on ESG, even within mainstream asset managers. And the final trend here is that there's urgency. Reports coming out from those like the IPCC really painting a stark reality of what's needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change in, in a, just a few short years. That's putting sustainability onto the agenda of investors like never before. 
So there's uh, more demand and, and companies are responding um, and investors are looking more closely at this. But one of the rubs on investors is that they're pretty short term in their thinking and sustainability is inherently longer term. So how is that chasm being crossed? I mean, you're right. Today's short term investors have this outsized influence on what companies are prioritizing in their communications and also how they're communicating it to their investors. And while sustainability is inherently long-term in nature, companies have this role to play in demonstrating how the business benefits of sustainability are are, um, being felt both here and now. And there's an opportunity to actually take control of the narrative. And in doing so, companies that are actually doing this hard work of developing sustainable business strategies can demonstrate to investors how they're benefiting through supply chain resilience, um, through branded asset avoidance, cost savings, efficiency. And it's by actually doing so and taking advantage of this proactive engagement strategy that they can actually start to change that conversation they're they're having with investors from one that's more focused or only focused on the short term to one that also integrates a long-term value creation strategy. One of the other things we've noticed, and we'll be talking about this at our GreenVin Summit at GreenViz in a few weeks in in, uh, Phoenix, is that Companies and investors don't necessarily define leadership the same way. Is that a problem, and or are they actually sort of getting closer? Yes and no. So I think from the company perspective, sustainable business leadership often is, is defined by, you know, if they're topping the Dow Jones Sustainability Index or by being the first company to come out and make an ambitious commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to launch a new sustainable product innovation. But for investors, Sustainable business leadership is often much simpler. Investors care about good governance, and they want to know how sustainability is linked with financial performance. So what our interviews with investors that fed into this new report that we just released affirm is that while this data on environmental and social performance information can provide a good sense of where the company is today and maybe what their past performance was, it's actually those details related to how sustainability is integrated into accountability mechanisms, both at the board and the management level, that give them those critical insights into whether the company is likely to sustain that performance into the future. And I'm sure as it comes as no surprise that it's critical to investors to understand what those links are between sustainability and how it's driving financial performance improvement. So where possible, investors also want to understand how companies are quantifying those investments in sustainability programs and how it's translating into things like cost savings, market expansion, and revenue growth. And also risk. I mean, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and uh, it it seems to be putting more of the focus on on not just uh, what the benefits are, but what are the risks to companies in operating in a climate-constrained world? Absolutely. Yeah, those investor-driven calls for improved, more robust, meaningful disclosure are really important in these conversations and how companies can more effectively be providing the information that investors need to see. It's not just about providing kind of year-over-year performance information. It's also by providing that context that's needed to understand that data. And a critical thing that's actually called for in the TCFD is understanding management accountability strategies and how the company is is governing and integrating issues like climate change into their strategic planning, um, both in the short and long term. So what's the message to companies here? What do you want to see them doing differently now uh, as a result of this increased interest on the part of Mm -hmm. investors? 
And as you mentioned before in your opening, more companies than ever before disclosing sustainability information to their investors. The problem is the vast majority are doing so in a way that just continues to reinforce this misconception that sustainability is a nice to do um, or something that's not financially material for the company. And at many companies, engagement with investors on ESG issues can be met internally with this apprehension, this skepticism and confusion because there's this lack of understanding of what information investors value, where they want to see it, and who they want to hear from, from the company. And as a result, companies are really failing to communicate sustainability as an integral part of their decision making, something that's driving resilience, that's improving operational efficiency, that's opening up new sources of innovation, and ultimately positioning it as something that strengthens the bottom line. So you know, we think that companies need to change this conversation that they're having with investors. They need to shift from an investor engagement strategy that's based on reacting to investor queries on particular issues such as climate change or water risk to one that's proactive, where they can control that narrative and actively demonstrate why a focus on sustainability is actually improving and strengthening their company. Kristen Lang is the director of the company network at Ceres and author of Changing the Conversation, Redefining How Companies Engage Investors on Sustainability. You can download it from the Ceres website, CERES.org. Thanks so much, Kristen. Thanks so much, Joel. Nearly 62% of U.S. companies are planning to put a circular production model in place or already support one. That's one of the high-level findings of a report released earlier this month by ING, the Dutch-born financial services company. The research represents the views of executives in four sectors, automotive, consumer electronics and telecommunications, food and agriculture, and healthcare. And it demonstrates a huge shift in thinking over just the past year. Here to discuss the results in more detail is Anne Bunreal, Head of Sustainable Finance for the Americas region of ING. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, first, I have to ask, why is ING so interested in this issue? I think people might be surprised to hear that your organization has a circular economy program called Orange Circle. Well, sustainability has been on our agenda and part of our strategy uh, for quite some time. And we are especially interested in how it can help our our customers and how we can lever, leverage whatever we're doing on the lending side um, on the topic of sustainability. And we see that circular economy, because it offers uh, such a great business case potentially for businesses, we see that as a as one of the aspects that will change the economy and where we can add value by showing leadership and um, thought leadership, but also thinking about how that um, those models can apply to our customers and how we can help them. Can you give me an example of how ING is helping finance a, a circular economy initiative? Can you, can you point to some specific things? Yeah, so we, we finance larger companies with with circular economy initiatives, but I think the uh, example that I'm most excited about is a recently, um, it's not a startup anymore, but it's, it's a newly incorporated company called Black Bear Carbon that we finance. And they are a great example of circular economy. They are taking uh, tires from the landfill 
and they're extracting uh, carbon black, which is a, a product that's used to make rubber soles or new tires, but even it's used in, in electronics. So they extract that from the tires and they sell it, generating revenues. And the process of extracting is even generating enough energy to to power their own operations largely. So it's a great example of the circular economy and that's where ING played a key role in financing uh, the company. Cool, okay, great. Okay, to the research at hand, how long has your team been studying this issue and why these particular industries? So the, the first um, circular economy report was commissioned uh, already a couple of years ago and it came out in May 2015 in the Netherlands. And we've been thinking about circular economy initiatives. We've we've done different things on the topic. And then last year, we decided to focus on the U.S. because that's, an air, that's a region where we hadn't brought up the, um, the topic of circular economy. So we commissioned this specific survey last year with the results just coming out now. In terms of the industries, why we focus on this, uh, we see a lot of uh, opportunities and uh, applications of circular economy in these four, and um, it also happens to overlap a lot of the uh, the client base that we have in this region. Right. So it was a, a good match. <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what were the key takeaways of this year's research? Um, was there anything surprising? Well, I think one of the things that we were pleasantly surprised about is we asked, we did another survey on the topic of sustainability more generally last year. And what and we asked a question whether sustainability is on the agenda and whether it influences company strategy. And the uh, number of companies that answered that positively uh, doubled from last year to this year. So we were excited about that because it, it means that U.S. companies are increasingly finding the topic of sustainability relevant for their business and also taking in, into account for setting their own strategy. Um, of course, that was the start of our survey. The rest of the survey was about circular economy, and we also found that most companies have um, initiatives, 62% of U.S. companies have an intent to um, Im implement circular applications in their operations. And about 16% is currently saying that they're embedding circular thinking in their, in their operations or their business models. So those were, you know, key findings uh, within these four, four industries. I think what we also found as a, from the survey is that most companies are still thinking uh, about circular economy uh, with a more limited scope, really focusing on uh, cost reduction or efficiencies in their operations uh, without taking into account what circular business models uh, could mean for, you know, in terms of opportunities or revenue generation. Yeah, so I want to poke into that a little bit. I mean, first of all, what would be a strategic opportunity? Could you, you, you talked about your, your investment a little bit earlier, but are there things that you do see as strategic opportunities, new revenue streams? Yeah, there's a, a, a lot of them. I think companies, when they start thinking about uh, circular economy, they start thinking about operational efficiency, but then they quickly realize that 
whatever they put in place in terms of um, in terms of their operational models can also lead to other uh, byproducts. A great example is Heineke that is selling the uh, barley husk that they uh, generate as, as part of the uh, beer uh, process and they sell that to um, animal feed, to feed cows and that generates a second source of revenue. Um, whereas they started out as just reducing waste from their operations, they now found that it could actually bring revenues. Another great example is uh, Dell. Um, they found that by setting up and making their uh, computers as modular as possible, also for efficiency reasons, they could, if they got parts back or received uh, old computers back, they could refurbish a lot of those and use them in, in new computers again. So it also, and by making the the design very modular, you can just take out whatever is not working and, and refurbish what is still perfectly fine. Right. So, but not a lot of companies are thinking that way yet. That's the sort of strategic lens on this. Um, and, and you note, the study notes that this is still more of an operational um, concern for, for many of the companies that are thinking about it. So what what do you think it will take to change that perception, right? Especially in the United States, which quite frankly seems to be a little bit, I mean, they get the circular economy model, but they seem to be a little bit less advanced um, than companies in Europe. So what do you think it'll get to, to take companies and make them think strategically about this? Well, I think one thing that U.S. companies historically have been particularly good at is they are very entrepreneurial and they see competitive attention very quickly and they react to that. Um, we think that the circular economy will bring new business opportunities and, and bring new startups that will quickly grow into bigger platforms. And uh, once companies notice that that competitive tension might affect their business case, they uh, will likely think about how they can restructure their models. Um, you know, there are great examples of circular economy platforms that have actually uh, started in the U.S., like Uber or Zipcar, the sharing platforms of, of products. Those are all great examples of, of circular thinking as well. Or rent a runway, right? You have um, fashion companies, instead of you buy a product, you are now leasing it for for a day. So it's really very broadly applicable and uh, US companies have historically been been very good at uh, coming up with, with new ways of, of doing business. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find everything you've ever wanted to know about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the other link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five, count them, five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Energy Weekly comes out on Thursdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three, too. Heather and I will be back next week. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>